Welcome to Dumpy Little Unicorn podcast. Today I am talking to Gareth L. Powell, author of The Recollection, the Akak Macaque Trilogy and the Embers of War Trilogy, and the nicest man on Twitter. Welcome, Gareth. How are you today? Hi, I'm fine, thanks. Nicest man on Twitter? Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You've just got one of the the most positive presence on Twitter, the support that you give to the writing community is just great. So I thought I'd call you the nicest man on Twitter. Oh, shucks, thank you. <laughs> so uh, what I thought I'd ask you about first of all is, I'm going in quite deep really, artificial intelligence is something that you seem to keep coming back to. It's there in Akak Makak and it's there in Embers of War. What's the fascination? Oh, we're jumping right in the deep end. Huh? I am, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I get this is kind of a theme that seems to have emerged organically in my work. It's not one I set out to tackle. It seems to be one that I keep coming back to again and again and again. And I suppose it's more to do with not so much a, a fascination with artificial intelligence itself, but more a fascination with what it is to be human and so using artificial intelligence as a way to sort of comment on humanity and what it means to be human and where the boundary is between human and not human. Some people do it with aliens. I, I seem to be doing it with artificial intelligence. But it, it's a very handy way of kind of stepping outside of that humanity and looking back and thinking, well, you know, if half my brain is is replaced with artificial neurons, how much of my thoughts are still human? And things like that. So it's it's a very good way of looking around the the, the borders and the, and the ragged edges of who we are as as people. It certainly is, and it's something that I've found sort of like particularly fascinated in your work. And just with the idea of what it means to be human, is it something that you're sort of worried about, or do you think it sort of the things that are emerging from the the sort of like the raggedy edges are, are something that should be celebrated? I think I think it's a bit of both. I mean, any any tool is can be used as a weapon, more or less. I mean, you know, a, a hammer can help you build a house, or it can help you smite your enemies, especially if you're Thor. And so that you know, there's these kind of things that are emerging: artificial intelligence. Elon Musk's just announced he wants to, you know, create a computer interface for the human brain, or whatever mad mm-hmm. scheme he's come up with now. And there's all these kind of exciting opportunities. But there's lots of kind of scary implications as well, because, you know, if you can if you can build a link where to help a paradise person operate a robotic limb or something, for instance, uh, then you can build a link to help uh, an astronaut operate a robotic probe on the surface of the moon or something. Very, you know, exciting stuff. But then at the same time, you've kind of got once you've got those kind of links established into the brain, they can be used for other things. And they're, you know, surveillance, control, all these kind of issues start to come forward, privacy. And as I said, what at what point do you stop becoming human? So, and also putting everything online, everything is becoming vulnerable. Yeah. So I'm in two minds about installing software in your head that A, could be hacked, and B, who owns that software? And what, Ooh, yeah. what, what happens if the license runs out? You know, like Microsoft Word used to sell you a little box with a CD in it and you owned a Microsoft Word. But now it's suddenly gone to a subscription service. So do you own Microsoft Word? Because if you let your prescription lapse, can you still use it or will it just stop letting you use it so you no longer own it? 
because as soon as you stop paying for it, it stops working. So that's, you know, and with ebooks as well, we've had this discussion with yeah. who owns the ebooks on your your ebook reader because they can be taken away from you even though you've paid for them. Yeah, it's it's a whole can of worms, I think. And it we're really o- is. Yeah, <laughs> shows like um, Black Mirror and stuff and just sort of skirting the edges of it because we've got all the Philip K. Dick kind of paranoia, but now the the implications of what's possible or what's going to be possible in the next few years is stuff that would, you know, send Philip K. Dick jabbering and screaming over the hills and far away because it's it's just mind-blowing. And I, you know, I don't know enough about it, but just I, from the, the small amount I do know, it's possibly an incredibly scary time coming, but also possibly an incredibly exciting one. And I, to be honest, this discussion was probably had when we first discovered fire, but it's... <laughs> It's, you know, oh, we could cook. Oh, we could also burn down the entire world. So it's, you know, there, there's always two sides to, to everything. And as science fiction writers, I think there's an old saying that you shouldn't predict the car unless you're going to predict the traffic jam. So we kind of have that responsibility. Absolutely. So it's it's looking sort of looking into the future, but sort of also sort of imagining the implications of everything that you've looked into or imagined and it's I mean it's quite a responsibility really just sort of having that how do you sleep with your imagination it's one of those sort of crazy things yeah it's it's I mean there's a fine line between kind of extrapolating for a rattling good yarn and just driving yourself insane with future paranoia but you know there there are other writers like William Gibson and uh, Tim Morn and people who, who kind of go into this a lot more deeply um and probably a lot better informed than I am but it's yeah it's still something that you've got to even in like the most unrealistic sort of space opera you have to think well what are the downsides of this so if you know we've got an engine for instance the Millennium Vulcan we've got this little engine that can apparently propel this freighter light years in any direction really fast but doesn't appear to take up any room with us inside the ship so it's you know quite quite compact so you think well that's really handy you can slap that on anything and off we go so that's where you get all these weird spaceships but then there's got to be downsides which is how do you how do you control that how do you if that technology is that cheap and that small and that easily sort of strapped onto anything how do you control that how do you control these ships zipping about the place and especially when they seem to be controlled by hitting with a spanner quite a lot of the time Oh yeah, that's that. That is a really, really good point. And um, just sort of moving on from that slightly, or quite a long way actually, because the one thing I wanted to talk to you about is is your women characters. You've written a this range of women. So you've got Victoria, Kate, Holly from Ragged Alice, and Sal Constant. Oh, what? Can't say the surname. Constance. Constance. From Embers of War, and. These women are all fantastic. They are sort of really flawed and really strong. And I'm sorry to say that not all male authors have the ability sort of to tap into what drives women, but you do seem to. Where does that come from? I'm not entirely sure. I, I seem to feel more comfortable writing female characters than male characters. I'm not entirely sure why. I kind of grew up, I, you know, I had two sisters, you know, I've always been surrounded at work and at home and in my personal life by incredibly strong, flawed, fantastic women. And it just feels kind of sort of natural to write 
characters like that I, I don't sort of sit down and go right i must now write a strong female character because i think that's you know that that's self-defeating but when i'm sitting down and i'm coming up with characters it's just like i don't really think about the gender so much as who the right person to tell this story would be and i don't kind of set out to write women per se you know i am this i'm very conscious of this sort of white middle-aged male writing i am going out to write women characters um <laughs> I, I i don't do that i just go i just kind of write human characters yeah uh, and i write them the way i would write male characters so i don't have any of this nonsense of you know staring into the mirror for ages and describing yourself or you know what's what's the example on the uh internet uh, you... walking boobily down the stairs yes it's, it's like one of my certainly one of my pet hates is is that some male authors um seem to think that women's boobs have these amazing expressive superpowers um (laughs) (laughs) which they don't really they just they're just kind of there and for the most part women really would rather they just were ignored but it's like there's some a lot of men who have this fascination especially you know writing about them describing them how they react to things and it's like they don't have their own brain. <laughs> <laughs> I, I read a book recently where all the female characters were super hot for a start and they all spent ages just talking about their clothes and, you know, their, their perkiness and their, you know, how they <laughs> still manage to be sexy. And, you know, all of the, and you think some of these are supposed to be like, scientists and doctors and they're still like she you know she unbuttoned another button and kind of blah 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 and it was it was really and really irritating because it was as if the male characters would have been there just walking around talking about their bollocks all the time <laughs> which, which doesn't really happen i mean we don't no. you know it's just it's yeah so yeah i i i just kind of write human beings and i assume from my experience and knowledge of, of female human beings that I've met, that you don't all are not all constantly thinking about your appearance. Um, and I think I, I think I barely describe any of my characters either. There's, um, I just put it maybe hair colour, or whether they've got a tattoo or, or something, you know, just yeah. a little thing to, ha- and then I let the the reader sort of flesh out the details rather than kind of have them staring wistfully at themselves in the mirror listing all their good points. It's, it's, yeah, it's not something I consciously do, but it's something that feels like it comes from a true place for me. So, Well, I for one am very grateful that you do because there's, there's far too many books where the, the women characters are not portrayed as well. And it's, it's sort of lovely to see, you know, it's one of those things that um, as a reader, I really enjoy finding sort of rounded characters right the way through and not just on the you know the chosen male character and it's it's really refreshing when when men do you know able to do that because quite often they they don't think outside their own experience so thank you very much for doing that that's i mean my my opinion is if you're going to try and write believably about a sentient starship an artificial intelligence an alien you should be able to write about the opposite sex much more easily because you know you've met some of them and they're not entirely different from you so 
you should be you know if you can write you know a, a, a monologue from the point of view of a Dalek or something you should be able to write the opposite sex it's, it's you know it's not rocket science you absolutely should now the next thing I wanted to ask you about the next book you've got coming out is the is light of impossible stars which is the third part of your embers of war trilogy what can you tell us about it it's really good <laughs> oh i hope so i can't wait to read it <laughs> um it's yes it continues the story i mean fleet of knives the second book mm-hmm. um, pretty much ended on a cliffhanger yes and it continues the story from a couple of days after that and, you know, the trouble dog is in some trouble. We're facing insurmountable odds and um, threats from, you know, both sides is sort of stuck between the forces of order and the forces of chaos and has to kind of negotiate a path through and come to terms with the people that who have been lost along the way. But also there's a host of new characters as well. Well, I say a host, there's a few. There's a few new characters. There's uh, there's there's one particular character called uh, Cordelia Parr, who becomes very important. We follow her from her early childhood and adolescence right through to uh, when she meets up with the dog. So it's, yeah, there's all your favourite characters are back, but there are some brand new ones and some brand new elements to the story. And then there is the big final reckoning. So mm-hmm. stay tuned. Okay, I'm really much looking forward to it. So when can we see that being published? That will come out on the 20th of February. Okay, so a little way off yet. Yeah, about six or seven months, isn't it? But still excited about it. (laughs) And beyond that, I believe congratulations are in order. You've recently signed another two-book deal with Titan. What can we expect from that? Uh, Well, yes, I have. Um, Two books, it's a um the first two books in a possible series but it's a series in the sense that ian banks's culture is a series in that they're standalone novels but set against a common background okay so it's not like the the trouble the the embers of war is one story yeah uh, whereas these will be sort of a series of different stories there'll be some recurring characters and locations and so on but they, they, they're kind of designed more standalone books than as a typical series so sure. at the moment the working titles are stars and bones and stars and minds that may change but I'm, I'm i'm writing them at the moment in fact my deadline for the first one is february okay so i've got got about seven months to do that because uh titan like the books handed in like a, a year before they come out so sure yeah so i'm working on that at the moment it's fun it's a slightly different change of pace than the the, the embers books at the moment it seems to be slightly less oh what's the word slightly slightly less kind of deeply emotional and a bit, mm-hmm. a bit more of a, a romp at the moment but they're still still the same if you like the characters from embers um i think we'll like the characters from this one although they're, they're not quite as gloomy as some of the embers characters <laughs> Excellent. I'm really looking forward to that as well. Now, I literally earlier on this week finished reading Ragged Alice, which I really enjoyed. And I know because I've been like following you on Twitter for quite a long time now that sort of you originally come from Wales. So that's clearly been sort of your inspiration for Ragged Alice. How else does that inform your work? 
actually, I originally come from Bristol, but uh, <laughs> my my father was Welsh. Ah, oh, right. Okay. And, and I obviously had a few Welsh relatives, so I uh, spent a lot of time in Wales as a kid on holiday and stuff. And then I spent three years in Pontypridd as a student at the University of Glamorgan. So um, I, I had a lot of kind of I have a bit of an odd relationship with Wales in some ways. In that you know, it's literally the land of my father. But when I go there, you know, I feel that I'm English. So it's kind of a, it's kind of this odd relationship. And when I was at university, I got hassled in the street by, by sort of locals for being an English student coming and, and, you know, taking all the affordable housing away from local families and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, I've, yeah, I've had this weird relationship with Wales and it's, it's a strikingly beautiful landscape but also in some ways a little eerie and a little, you know, you can imagine strange going on up the end of the valley at night when it's all dark. <laughs> yeah, you certainly um, can. Yeah, so it's, you know, so it's a kind of it's a kind of weird kind of love and fear kind of relationship I've got with it. So I wanted to, well, what actually happened was my agent really wanted me to write a kind of Lee Child-style thriller that would make us both millionaires. <laughs> and I sat down and started writing it and completely missed the target and ended up writing this police procedural set in, you know, Aberystwyth, so, which was probably, you know, diametrically opposed to his idea of what I was going to come up with. But, you know, it, it was a story I felt I had to tell. I got in loads of stuff there from my childhood, loads of stuff about, you know, out-of-season Welsh seaside resorts. And, you know, I got an ear for the the accent as well because mm-hmm. you know, I grew up with all these kind of Welsh relatives so I wanted to write something that was kind of quintessentially Welsh but at the same time not a caricature or a parody so yeah it's an interesting experiment I'm really really pleased with how it came out I really liked the main character I really enjoyed writing it so yeah uh, I, I said I've, I've literally just finished it and I I thought Holly was a fantastic character and also it really resonated with me because I grew up in sort of like North Shropshire, which is just on the Welsh border. And I've recently sort of, prior to moving down to London, I, I lived and worked in Wrexham for about sort of 10 years. I know it's like a life sentence, but um, <laughs> it's it sort of, I could, I could, you know, I've been to Aberystwyth. I know I know I could picture exactly what you were describing because I've been there and I, you know, I've seen the, sort of that element and it just felt really sort of real to me. So I really did enjoy it. I think I managed to, you know, I mined deep to kind of get as much authenticity in there as I could. And I'm very pleased that I think I've, I've captured the spirit of the place. So it was um, an interesting experiment. I don't, there may be further adventures in that series you never know oh I would like there to be I did enjoy it so much yeah but you know I don't have any ideas at the moment I just got a vague idea that I might return to to Holly one day and see how she's getting on and her mum of course absolutely (laughs) so spoilers um, (laughs) we we shall we shall see okay now just sort of moving on from like the sort of like heavy questions to some some sort of slightly fluffier ones so what have you been watching lately uh you think i have time to watch television well occasionally <laughs> it doesn't have to be television uh, I, I i enjoyed the good place i watched that watched that a while ago yeah um that was great especially the first season absolutely adored it so what else have i been watching i've been watching a lot of youtube 
uh, with my youngest. We've been watching things things like uh, funniest parkour accidents. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when skiing goes wrong and things like that, just to, you know, for a laugh. And I've, I've just started watching Brooklyn Nine-Nine, actually. On Excellent. Lots and lots of recommendations. I'm sort of working my way through season one at the moment. Okay, well, join the join the club. I've I've been watching it, and it's one of those things that's just grown on me, and I, it's now one of my favourite programs. There's there's just a ton of we've got Netflix. There's just a ton mm-hmm. of stuff that I think oh, I should watch that. That looks really good. I should watch that, and I just never get around to it because I watch television for more than about twenty minutes, and I start getting fidgety and have to come and write something. So okay, I'm not a, I'm not a great telly watcher, but okay. Uh, or well, if I can recommend something for you that I've been watching on Netflix that I would just absolutely love. It only comes in 20-minute episodes, so that should be about right for you. And it's just this joyous comedy called Shit's Creek. Right. I've heard of it. I don't know anything about it. Though. And it's sort of a family who have been sort of like super rich and they lose all their money and they have to go and live in the town of Shit's Creek, which the father had bought for his son as a joke at, at some time in the past. And um, these people are absolutely horrendous. And it's all about them sort of learning how to exist in this sort of like hick town in the middle of nowhere. And it's just beautiful. It's beautifully observed. It's so funny. And um, yeah, if you need something gentle, if you need something just funny and to unwind to i totally recommend it fantastic i'll give that a go i i've also enjoyed the uh, the spider-man movie recently as well oh, yes yes i did too there was a uh, a six-part tv show called black monday oh right okay i don't know if you know about it it was it's oh, what's his name i'm really bad with names that's one of my achilles heels or oh, i even remembered achilles name there but Oh, what's his name? Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. He played War Machine in the MCU. Oh, um, and now it's gone from my head. Oh. That'll come back to me about 10 mm-hmm. tonight. But yeah, him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm assuming all the listeners are shouting at their... Uh, I'm sure they are. <laughs> ...podcast now. Um, him, um, uh, Andrew Rannells, the, the, the musical star. Yeah. Um, and a few other people. And it's the story leading up to Black Monday in the 80s. Oh, okay. And and it's how that how it was kicked off, and it's um, this fantastic kind of it's a comedy, and everybody's double crossing everybody else, and you know it's this, these kind of very unreconstructed uh, stock market guys just doing coke in their offices the whole time, and mm-hmm. um, there, there's a, there's a great uh, scene where they do a fundraiser for the Hezbollah to uh, you know to to keep fighting Russia in Afghanistan. And, and then they go, actually, we are thinking of changing our name to Taliban. <laughs> okay. oh, that's very good. I'd like that. That's catchy. I think that'll catch on. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's, 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 it's everything kind of gross and materialistic about, about, about the 80s, but it's in these kind of little six half-hour episodes, and it's fantastic. And I think it was it was either written or directed or something like that by Seth Rogen as well. Oh, uh, right, yeah. Yeah, and it's it's well worth seeking out. I understand they're filming a second series at the moment, so I don't know what that would be called. Be, oh, shit, Tuesday or something. <laughs> I will definitely look that one up. 
So moving on from sort of what you've watched, what have you heard? I had had a lot of stuff. Um, I tend to have a lot of music, um, mm-hmm. especially in the evenings. I like I, I prefer listening to music when I'm unwinding, and when I'm when I'm writing, sometimes I listen to music. Sometimes I just listen to white noise. But I've been listening to I've got a, a, a sort of best of Puccini playlist, which is all the kind of high-pitched arias and stuff, mm-hmm. Madame Butterfly and so forth. A lot of jazz, a lot of Miles Davis, that kind of stuff. Um, and then I just kind of stick random play on and it comes out with all these songs from all across, you know, the last 40-odd years of my life. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, yeah, I just like listening to a lot of music. And it's it's mostly kind of, oh, Glenn Miller as well. One of, it seems Glenn Miller seems to suit really hot nights hot sticky nights just a bit of like you know all very yeah. kind of cap and peggy kind of vibe now then the next thing i, I i'm going to ask you is what do you think needs more love Ooh, i don't know that's a long list um me <laughs> my books I don't know. I think everything needs a lot more love. I think the whole world needs a lot more love at the moment. The environment needs some love. Oh, it certainly does. Society needs some love. Politics needs to shut the fuck up and do something helpful for a change. <laughs> oh, don't. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, the whole world needs some love. And, you know, we need champions like Greta Thunberg. I probably pronounced that wrong. And Chuck Tingle. And... Just anybody who's putting love out into the world is a hero at the moment because there seems to be this kind of this really cynical global warming is probably going to happen. So we're going to have a fire fire sale with the entire world um, and then let all the poor people die while we all live in our bunkers or fuck off to Mars with Elon Musk. So it's, uh, yeah, the more love we put out in the world, I think it's, it's becoming a revolutionary act just to be positive and be generous and yeah. i think most people most people on an individual basis i think probably are good people and probably are kind people at least you know with maybe just within their social group but and sometimes i think sometimes we forget because we're fed this unending diet of, of hate and maliciousness and, and fear and we just need to be reminded sometimes i was driving through bristol last night actually and my car has automatic headlights that come on when it gets dark but for some reason they hadn't come on and I hadn't noticed and there was this car behind me flashing me what's he want what's he want and I sort of pulled over and wound my window down ready for him to yell at me that I'd done something wrong or something and he just said excuse me sir you need to turn your lights on and I was like thank you (laughs) and I was like why was I expecting a confrontation there um so yeah we just need to kind of remember the love a bit I think yeah, I, I think I think you're right there, and um, I think it's it sort of it's become so exhausting seeing the news at the moment. Just it just makes me want to run and hide. And again, this is partly why I've started this podcast is to look for the positive things and sort of to share share that with you know other people. And yeah, I think you know if we if we can all be a bit nicer to each other and just try and survive boris then i'm sure the world will will sort of improve this is you mentioned earlier about me being nice on twitter and this is exactly where it came from was at one point i 
back in 2016 or something, I think, there was a general election and then there was the referendum and everything on Twitter was just horrible with, you know, people shouting at one another and there's this whole kind of them and us kind of, and it became so exhausting and, and I was finding that I was feeling kind of stressed out and, you know, physically stressed out all day because of this kind of constant barrage of, of hate and stuff and I just thought I'm going to put something positive out into the world I'm going to be the change I want to see on Twitter and so I just typed into my into the little box is there anything I can do to help anybody today and I had such a positive response that I've just kept that going I've, I've decided I'm not I'm not going to rant on Twitter about politics or anything because there are so many people doing that on both sides and you know I think people can probably intuit my political leanings quite easily especially if they've read my books and it's just you know I would rather be putting something positive I would rather be kind of being the you know being the candle instead of the darkness just leading by example in some ways and just saying look let's just help each other because life is shitty for everybody and because I'm a writer I kind of concentrate on helping aspiring writers because that just seems to be the most practical thing I can do because I have you know I've been through this process a few years ahead of them so I've kind of learned some stuff as I've gone along and if I can just communicate that back then you know that helps them and then they kind of and it's, it seems to have built up this you know and in the last couple of years I've, I've sort of mushroomed from about six or seven thousand followers to like 20,000 because people are just coming on board and I've got, got this really positive sort of group of followers now who seem to respond very well so I think you put good things out into the world and a lot of time good things come back to you. I totally agree and this is partly what I'm trying to do with with this podcast is to sort of try and put a little bit of good out there and try and make it the world a little bit better. Yeah. Now I did ask Twitter if they had any questions for you and Luella asked, how do you remain so positive? But I think you've just kind of answered that, unless there's anything you want to add. It's just simply that I decide to be. You know, I'm not always positive. In, my real, in, in real life, I do have days where I just lie in bed and I can't get up. And, you know, and it feels that like everything's horrible and we're on a, you know, slippery slope to hell. Everybody does. I wouldn't be, you know, if I, if I was that positive, all the time in real life I think I'd probably get arrested <laughs> but it, I, I, th- I think people who are just constantly happy either lack imagination or, or some form of intelligence because they can't see the crap that's going on in the world but on Twitter I've, I make the positive decision to be positive and that, that's just something I do and, and I mean I'm completely myself on Twitter I'm not pretending I just give voice to my positive side and try and leave the negative thoughts alone as much as possible so it's kind of yeah it's i'm not pretending to be something i'm not but at the same time i'm just kind of showing my best side absolutely okay next question well um parroted uh, with two t's asked asked three questions but i'm going to give you a choice of two okay. um, and they ask what is your process for creating a character and then they've also asked for tips on beard maintenance. Hmm. Okay. Uh, well, to answer the first one, um, I usually find it impossible to write about a character until I've settled on their name. First thing I do is come up with a name. 
It's the same with novels, actually. I, I don't seem to be able to write them until I've got a, at least a working title that I'm happy with. So, uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll come up with a name. I'll have a vague kind of idea who this person will be in the plot, but then I'll come up with a name, and the name kind of gives them form in some way. So I come up with a name that feels like the kind of person I want to write about. And then from there, I'll kind of, I'll decide a few kind of, just a very few things about them. And then I'll just start writing and I'll discover who they are as I write, especially as they start talking, because dialogue is, you know, just the best way to, to show the inner workings of a character. And they'll evolve organically as I write. So uh, it's that creative thing. That's what I like, the, the, the creation in the act. But rather than, I'm not one of these people who writes out this big D&D character sheet and a 10-page bio before I start. I like to discover that stuff as I go along. So instead of fitting a load of backstory in, I'm kind of discovering what I need to as, as it comes up. And that's not to say in the edit I won't go back and kind of seed some information further back in the book or, or whatever. But yeah, it's, they, they sort of come very organically from within me. Okay, so more of a pantser. Uh, yeah, yeah. Sorry, well, I, was just, I was just thinking how pretentious they come organically from within me. <laughs> If, if not a little wrong in some way. I, th I think all my characters are facets of me in some way. Absolutely. And then beard maintenance? Beard maintenance, I don't know, just keep it, I just keep it trimmed. So I don't, I don't have a big neck beard, so I just keep it kind of nicely, nicely shaped. Bit of beard oil now and again, bit of shampoo now and again. Apart from that, it more or less looks after itself. Excellent. And I've just got a couple more questions from Twitter. Rick right now asked, what was your first horror film that you saw? Oh, first horror film. Good question. Can't remember. The first, <laughs> the first one I saw in the cinema was probably Aliens. So I snuck into the Bristolodian at mm -hmm. the age of 15 friend of mine and I, we snuck in there after school one day and watched Aliens on the big screen and it scared the crap out of us, but in the best, <laughs> the best way possible. Excellent. <laughs> you know, I've been completely in love with that film ever since. And, uh, and then we, we kind of, we left and then we went back to, back to his house the next day and got the VHS of Alien. So we watched mm -hmm. them in the wrong order and just became obsessed with them. They were fantastic. And I think that kind of grubby working aesthetic has kind of stayed with me and, and kind of from Blade Runner as well. Those, those two films have kind of, and Terminator have kind of given me an aesthetic of kind of people in, in grubby overalls hammering about on, on scuffed and dented spaceships mm -hmm. and stuff. So I don't write about many Captain Kirks. It's all sort of, you know, bottom of the pile grunts just getting on with their jobs. Um, you know, they're often more interesting anyway. Yeah. The final question from Twitter comes from Jem Benyon. She has, what did she say? Uh, right, hang on, I've got it written down. Now, there's a quote that you have on your pinned tweet, and I've, got, I've written the quote down, and it, and it says, when you have an imagination like Gareth Powell's, you must write or paint or otherwise vent that imagination through art so your head won't explode. And that comes from the New York Journal of Books. She was wondering, if you were a visual artist rather than a writer, what kind of art would you create? Oh, that is a good question. Um, I, I do a little bit of sketching sometimes, uh, sketch spaceships and stuff. I'm not very good at it because I just kind of stopped drawing when I was 15, 16, when I did, you know, I did my 
got a C and O level art, and then pretty much didn't do any more drawing for years. So I've kind of stopped about the age of a 15 year old. So I can kind of draw tanks and stick dudes and, yeah. uh, you know, little curly ebbs for seagulls. So I'm not brilliant at, at, at sort of sketching or doing anything realistic. I think I would probably have to plump for something. I've forgotten the word now. Oh, what is it? Non representative, something. Impressionistic? Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, not quite. Abstract. Ah, yeah. Abstract, yes. Abstract. Sorry, my, my brain keeps misfiring words. Um, abstract. So, yes, so it'd be lots of colour and lots of squiggles and big kind of colourful canvases. That would be fun. Excellent. Thank you so much for sort of talking to me today. That's the end of it. Just checking, are you heading off to Worldcon? I am, yes. Yes, fly, flying over there in August. I shall see you there. Fantastic. I want to thank Gareth for joining me today. And as always, uh, thank you to Rob Sharp for letting us use Take to the Skies for the music. Thanks very much. This has been Dumpy Little Unicorn. <laughs>